The Encore Show, episode number 38. memorable would be Bob Dylan, because when we met, he suddenly said that he didn't want me to record our conversation. <laughs> really? Because he was, he was very concerned at that time of people bootlegging his recordings and going through his garbage cans, and you know, he was really invaded upon. Yeah. And so uh, I had to then suddenly turn to a notebook and begin to scribble furiously what he was talking oh, about. Oh, jeez. Yeah. He's not, he's not the easiest guy to decipher as it is, so to have to suddenly speed write was not the, yeah. the most pleasant experience. But we, we both got through it, and it turned out fine, and he was apparently quite pleased uh, with the results. Mm -hmm. Welcome to another encounter with some groovy moments from the past. You're listening to The Encore Show, where we visit the 60s, 70s, and 80s with Dick Scopatoni, whose pop group Harper's Bazaar had a hit record back in the day called Feelin' Groovy. Dick talks with guests from all the years that not only shaped our generation, but just happened to include the most magnificent music ever made, and the politics, protests, and everything else that played out during these unforgettable days of our lives. So Dick, what's on today's show? Hey, thanks, Ralph. Interesting footnote about Ben Fong Torres. When his father immigrated to the United States from China, his surname was Fong, but he changed it to Torres and posed as a Filipino in order to avoid prosecution under the Chinese Exclusion Act, which restricted Chinese immigration. Ben's sister, Shirley, who passed away in 2011, founded the well-known Bay Area company Walk Wiz Chinatown Tours, which continues today, run by Shirley's daughter, Tina. Ben seems to have a pedigree totally of his own making. He graduated from San Francisco State in the mid-60s and went on to become the senior editor for Rolling Stone magazine. He's authored a number of books. The one I just read is called The Hits Just Keep On. Coming, a history of top 40 radio. We'll talk about some of the classic interviews he's conducted for Rolling Stone and the awards he's won for magazine writing in just a moment. Machine in Houston, too close to New 
Hi, everyone. This is Chris Allegri. Take a moment to visit our website, theencoreshow.com, where you'll find all of our podcasts archived for your listening pleasure. But just as important, you've got to check out our shopping page. There's bargains on items from both today and yesteryear. Of course, there's plenty of memorabilia like autographed photos and gold records, but there's also fashion items, concert tickets, backyard party novelties, and a ton of fun things. Plus, when you visit theencoreshow.com, you can get on our email list and we'll send you weekly updates about upcoming shows. So once again, visit our website, theencoreshow.com. Reading the book, The Hits Just Keep On Coming by Ben Fong Torres reminded me of all the Bay Area DJs I used to listen to in the 60s. Dr. Don Rose, Johnny Holiday, Russ the Moose Syracuse, and the big daddy of them all, Tom Donahue. Before my group, the Tiki's, changed our name to Harper's Bazaar, we managed to get signed to Big Daddy Tom Donahue's label, Autumn Records. Also on that label at the time were the Beau Brummels and Sylvester Stewart, who later became Sly and the Family Stone. Ben Fong Torres talks about that incredible decade and the whole American music scene from back in the day, but that's just the tip of his journalistic iceberg. He's profiled many famous people in Rolling Stone magazine, which we'll talk about, but his books about the Doors, the Grateful Dead, and the Eagles document all the radio days of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Though Ben never had a hit record himself, anybody who's in the music business knows who Ben Fong Torres is, and we're going to find out a little bit more about him right now. So, Ben, welcome to the Encore Show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it, Dick. Yeah, well, I was so glad to be able to get through to you because we've so much of what you've done. Both you and I are essentially Bay Area people, and uh, so much of what you were talking about in the 60s is what I was living in the 60s. So I thought what we do is let's start this off by uh, going back and maybe doing a brief overview of your growing up years before your involvement in the San Francisco music scene. You want to talk about how you ended up in San Francisco and what your early uh, days looked like? Well, uh, I'm from across the bay in Oakland. And as a kid, was raised in a family restaurant or two, and so my escape from chores and homework was the radio. And I listened to um, minor league baseball at that time in the Bay Area and to radio uh, before Top 40 and then certainly when Top 40 hit. I was pretty much right there uh, following along, uh, listening to Kobe and to KYA and the KEWB. And so... Um, I wound up in San Francisco because of college, and that was in 1962 or so, and attended SF State, and so that's why, where I wound up, uh, uh, commuting back and forth until my, I think, senior year, when I became uh, an editor of the school paper, a daily. And that required me to be in the city uh, on a regular basis, so I pretty much moved into a place with uh, a couple of guys, and... Uh, from then on, was a San Franciscan. That, that would be right in the mid-60s and a very explosive time uh, on all levels. And you graduated from there with a B.A. in, in uh, radio and TV and film. What, what made you decide to do that? I think my chosen career objectives were dated back to uh, those Chinese restaurants in Oakland uh, because I 
listening to the radio and just began to fantasize about being on the radio. And I read newspapers and magazines and books, to, to, again, to pass the time. And so I kind of liked the idea of the written word and thought I could uh, try and do that, too. And so in school, uh, I was probably spending more time on the writing and editing part of it, working for the school paper. But at the same time, I still had that romantic feeling about radio. And so I tried out for the campus radio station, KRTG, and got a, a weekly DJ shift, as several of the students were able to do, and was on this stinky little radio station <laughs> uh, on campus. Yeah. That, that reached only the dorms, but hey, to me, it was still radio. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You were over the air at that point. Yeah, and yes. now, were you interviewing well-known people from San Francisco or or just people on campus? What what were you talking about? The, uh, on the Daily Gator, I would do interviews with various people who came on campus to give speeches. For example, there were Vietnam War rallies. There were uh, pro-legalization rallies going on. Uh, there was uh, the Black uh, Students' Union. There were issues for sure around that time. And there were personalities that I would cover, uh, and there were musical events like the Blues Festival or the Folk Festival. And for those occasions, I might run into an artist and begin to uh, do interviews with them as well as with uh, the other people who came on campus. So that began the process of learning to conduct interviews. But in terms of, uh, say, celebrities or the Rolling Stone level, that all came a couple of years later after Rolling Stone started in 1967, and I began writing for them in 68. So that's only a couple of years after college yeah. that I have begun to write for Rolling Stone. That sounds like just a whole gold mine of stuff all exploding almost at the same time. Uh, as I recall it, uh, you could probably do five interviews a day with five different groups or organizations and never run out of stuff. In those days... Everything was uh, hitting the mark. I mean, the, the whole the whole ball game was on the air, was in the uh, newspaper, and and we're talking about the San Francisco music scene. Uh, let's go in. The, let's let's begin that. So you now are on board with Rolling Stone. Had you met Jan Winter, or how did that process begin? Well, that's Jan Winter of Rolling Stone, and uh, he started the magazine almost precisely 50 years ago, uh, very late in 1967. I had never met him before, but uh, around uh, the, the uh, apartment or the flat that I shared with three other guys, we were all involved in music or media to some extent. And so all of us had an interest in this new little newspaper that came out from San Francisco that seemed to be covering the stuff we were most interested in in terms of music and culture. And, so, and the scene. So we all read it, passed it around, and were interested from the very beginning. And by the following early spring, I think it was, one of the roommates uh, tipped me to a story that I then called into the uh, magazine's office, and they liked the idea. And what it was was that uh, he had heard about a concert, a free concert in the park nearby, that was going to feature a blues band from Chicago, and it was to promote a Dick Clark movie about the Haight-Ashbury. Hmm. And I thought, oh, wow, Dick Clark of American Bandstand? Yeah. And so uh, Rolling Stone hadn't heard of it. I c covered it, wrote a, a little three- or four-paragraph report 
And that was it. The door was open, and suddenly I was uh, able now to call them with other ideas. Yeah. And I wound up covering the... <laughs> it comes full circle. I wound up covering um, the strike at KMPX, the Pioneer FM Freeform Station that had been was being led by Big Daddy Tom Donahue. Yeah, sure. He was there now, having left Top 40 Radio himself. And so I covered, or I helped cover, and then took over the reporting of that strike that went on forever. And so suddenly I had a, a number of bylines in Rolling Stone, and from there on began to get pretty regular freelance assignments while holding it down another job. And so at one point in oh, uh, May, maybe April of 1969, Jan Wenner sent me a note saying, please come in for a, a, a chat. Uh, let's have lunch or something like that. And so I did, and he offered me a job, and I joined Rolling Stone uh, as an editor and writer in May of 1969. All right. Yeah, that had to be a pretty big deal, I would think, for you, especially if you were holding down other jobs, as all of us have done, in order to make yes. the creative part work. But right, to, right. Did, did you ever meet uh, Donahue? Uh, and what was your experience with him or of him? What was your take on him? The other ambition I had, uh, having been radio, I wound up doing some radio work here in San Francisco, um, and wound up in about a year into my Rolling Stone time working on KSAN. And before that, I had met Tom while covering the strike. And who knows, I might have met him before then, but I was absolutely aware of all of his promotional, entrepreneurial, creative work in the, the in San Francisco, from concert promotion of the last Beatles concert at Candlestick Park oh, in yeah. 1966, yeah. which I attended. I attended so did uh, I. <laughs> as, a, as a so-called reporter, but also following his uh, and his partner Bobby Mitchell's uh, various, I wouldn't call uh, let's say let's say mini businesses. Yeah, um, like they, horse they racing. Had a lot. <laughs> they had a tip sheet going on. They had the nightclub. They had the autumn record label with the um, uh, with Sly Stone as the staff producer. They were just on top of everything. Yeah. They were trying to try to get into everything. So, yeah, I knew about Tom Donahue, wound up reporting on the KMPX strike, wound up on KSAN, where he had become, of course, a gigantic figure, and he was no longer the program director, or he was, I, I know, when I joined KSAN as basically a temporary weekend fill-in DJ in 1970, Tom was probably with Rachel doing the uh, KSAN thing in Los Angeles at uh, KMET. Yeah. And so he was busy on, again, always busy doing other things. And so I didn't have direct uh, connections with him. But as a weekend guy and fill-in, I had no connections anyway with people at KSAN. I just kind of got into the station on a Sunday morning or afternoon, uh, did my four or five hours and and didn't attend meetings or anything. Just yeah. the phantom DJ. Yeah, so yeah, sure. You know, I, you mentioned Rachel. I interviewed Rachel Donahue, I'm going to say, probably about two months ago. I think maybe back in August. 
Uh, it was a great interview. And one of the things that turned out to be really neat is my group, the Tiki's, had auditioned for Donahue and Autumn Records. I don't know how many times we auditioned for them. Many times. And they turned us down every time. But I remembered one of the auditions was at their club, Mother's on uh, Broadway, and I can recollect that we learned one thing from the mother's audition, and that is is that you know you haven't passed the audition when they say, uh, hey, thanks a lot, guys. You guys hungry? You want anything to eat? That was the trigger that meant, no, you didn't didn't make it. But unbeknownst Uh to me, who was there at Mother's during the day on that day we auditioned, but Rachel Donahue was there, and she remembered the whole thing. So anyway, I had an interesting interview with her. That whole music scene, like you're talking about Tom Donahue and, and Bobby Mitchell and all of the various things they were involved in, including that last Beatles show, incidentally, did you see the um, Ron Howard Eight Days a Week film yet? I've seen parts of the film. It looks really good. Yeah, I watched it the other night. I think it was on KQED. Really fascinating. It was about two and a half hours long, but the, the whole thing was really fascinating. Let's just take a moment for a brief musical interlude. We'll be coming back shortly, so stick around. Hey everybody, we've put up some really groovy new items on our website, theencoreshow.com. The sale of these website goodies helps keep The Encore Show free to all of our listeners. Send me an email and give me an idea of what new products you'd consider buying. Send it to dick at theencoreshow.com. And in the meantime, head over there and check out all the fun things we've got at www.com theencoreshow.com. I'm looking at a web page right now of all of your articles. The very first one I see is one called The Wild Stevie Wonder, Rolling Stone's 1973 interview. Um, let's just talk about that. How, how was it that you connected with him? Where were you? Did he come to the Bay Area? How did that whole thing start? That's about four or five years into my career, so that shouldn't be the top story. Yeah. But uh, the, the first major artist I uh, went and visited was Joni Mitchell in Laurel Canyon, actually. Oh, yeah. By, by the time Stevie Wonder, that was, I, if it's the story that um, I'm, I'm now thinking of, that was one of those nice confluences of media in that I, at Rolling Stone, you simply come up with ideas and you're saying, oh, Stevie Wonder has a new album, or hey, he's going to be in town. Whatever compels you to. Uh, decide to do the story, you contact Motown, in this case, and talk to the person who does publicity for them, and just say, hey, it's uh, blah, blah from Rolling Stone, and what do you think about 
us hooking up with Stevie for a story, and they say yes or no. And usually, because of, of it being Rolling Stone, they would say, yeah, sure. Sure. And so we set up the visit. And so depending, of course, on what they're doing, if they're recording, you go down to where they are. If uh, they're touring, then you, 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 you trace them for a, a show or two. If they're coming to the Bay Area, you might wait for it and, uh, ha and do the thing here. And in Stevie's case, I think we did it in San Francisco. Okay. Uh, I know it was at a hotel, at a concert, and because I was on KSAN at the time, he came to the station. Okay. Uh, after we had, we had done the Rolling Stone thing already, and then he was in town for a concert, probably at the Fillmore. And so I invited him to be my guest DJ on ah, KSAN, and yeah. he said, yeah. Okay. And so uh, there was Stevie. And that happened a lot. Uh, he was a, 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 a marvelous person, hilarious guy, great sense of humor. Uh, he, along with Ray Charles, uh, told, kind of confirmed in me that a disability does not disable one, that, yeah. that, they, that they dealt with their blindness in the most amazing ways. You know, that it just didn't stop them yeah. uh, as, as kids, as adults, as creative people, um, uh, they, they they dealt with it and they and, and wound up being standout artists yeah. in contemporary music. It's yeah. amazing. You know, I, I've got to ask you. Just talking about Stevie Wonder, I know there's a, a lot of well-known people that you've interviewed over the years. Uh, are there any of them that uh, really left a memorable impression on you? Who stands out? Well, um, many of them stand out. Uh, it's really hard to single out. Uh, when I've done promotions for books that I have done, uh, that question comes up. Uh, who, who, who is your favorite? And quite often, uh, they're outside the realm of rock and roll, amazingly. Hmm. And I do point to people like Ray Charles and to Marvin Gaye and to Diane Keaton, to... Steve Martin, and then in the rock arena, the most memorable would be Bob Dylan, because when we met, he suddenly said that he didn't want me to record our conversation. <laughs> really? <laughs> because he was, he was very concerned at that time of people bootlegging his recordings and going through his garbage cans, and you know he was really invaded upon. Yeah. And so... Uh, I had to then suddenly turn to a notebook and begin to scribble furiously what he was talking oh, about. Oh, jeez, yeah. He's not, he's not the easiest guy to decipher as it is, so to have to suddenly speed write was not the, yeah. the most pleasant experience. But we, we both got through it, and it turned out fine, and he was apparently quite pleased uh, with the results. Mm -hmm, but, mm -hmm. uh, so he was, he was definitely one of them. Linda Ronstadt, uh, Bonnie Raitt, Crosby Stills, Nash & Young, there are just many, many uh, experiences. Elton John on his Learjet, just uh, all these tours, these these uh, interviews. Then then the deadline session you know, where, you, where you're just slamming the story out on deadline, and it's pretty amazing that we got through all of that for, in my case, about eleven years at Rolling Stone, uh, helping put out a magazine every two weeks. That's amazing. Yeah, amazing. Well, especially when you got things happening like you were completely caught off guard on the on the Bob Dylan thing. You had to start writing furiously just to make just to make notes, and it definitely, I'm assuming it took you out of your normal comfort zone of clicking the recorder on and knowing you'd pick it up later on if you needed it. 
But right. Yeah. Yeah. And did you? Did I hear you say Learjet? Elton John's Learjet. What, what was that all about? Well, it was some kind of a private jet, probably Lear. Uh, that that was his mode of transportation for certain legs of certain tours, mm-hmm. and so you're, you're you're just on there uh, because that's how they're traveling. And with a Bonnie, it might be a bus. Yeah. With Linda, it might be a uh, a flight on PSA from oh. uh, Burbank to uh, to San Francisco sure. or, or the other way. So whatever, however they're going, you go. And so the famous Dylan was that they just told you, here's where we're going to be, here's how we're getting there, and if you. Uh, need help on transportation? You know, we'll, we'll we'll help you book your flight, or or book your hotel room, or whatever. Uh, you pay for it. You know, Rolling Stone pays for it, and uh, but we we got considerable cooperation from uh, musicians uh, back in those days. Uh, partly because of, um, of their interest in Rolling Stone, partly because Rolling Stone was really back then the only game in town. Yeah. There wasn't all this mass media, multi-platform coverage of uh, of pop music. Yeah, I, and I could see that would be a perfect entree for you almost continually by simply saying, as you know, I'm with Rolling Stone magazine. Right there, the do- you can hear the door opening <laughs> just because or the, of your... Or slamming. Or slamming, slamming. Yeah, right, yeah. right, exactly. I want to ask you about your books and columns and articles. And but Let's talk about your books. As I mentioned, the, the one I've read several times, the hits just keep on coming. How long did it take you to research all that? What was the, what was the process on that book? Was it a year long, six months long? How long did it take? I don't remember because I was, uh, I, I've always been, been a, uh, I've, I've always been on several tracks at the same time. So back then, I was managing editor of Gavin, uh, then a radio industry magazine sure. that came out of San Francisco from Bill Gavin from way back in the uh, late 50s, I think it was, he started. You must have known Dave Sholin. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The Duke. Yeah, Dave and the Duke. I interviewed Dave, too, yeah. Sure. That whole and Gavin scene was very... What do I want to say? Impressive? Maybe that's not quite the right. There, there was a lot of control that Bill Gavin had over what actually hit the what actually hit the airwaves. I think right, or certainly influence. I'm not sure about control, yeah. um, but influence yeah. just from his opinions and uh, like that. And so I was doing that, and uh, for uh, an anniversary, I might have been the 40th anniversary of the publication. I came up with the idea of a uh, history of Top 40 Radio. And by that time, I had already written quite a bit about Top 40 and done some profiles of some of the DJs and programmers for Gavin and other places. And so I thought I could just put together uh, a book by combining that reportage with some new interviews and additional pieces that I would go and get for the book. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what I did, just made up a dream, a wish list of the people I thought belonged in a History of Top 40 book. Yeah. And we just went after them. Yeah. And so it took probably about a year. Uh, no, maybe not. Maybe it was only a few months because by the time we came up with the idea, the anniversary was, was dawning on us, so we didn't have a whole lot of time to mess around. Yeah. And so I just, yeah, I slammed it out pretty quick. Uh, and because Gavin was connected to a, uh, a book publisher at that point, uh, it was a pretty quick turnaround. It was designed by uh, the graphic designer, the art directors at Gavin, 
And so, yeah, we, we, we crank out a book pretty fast. And so if you've read it twice, you've probably read, uh, run across a, a number of typos. But uh, that, that was <laughs> You know, I didn't notice them. And normally I do, but I didn't. I must have kind of spread read through a lot of the book. It was just so much of it had to do with my recollections as well. And once again, both of us being from the Bay Area, I think we were automatically plugged into a lot of stuff that was going on in in the Bay Area. Uh, you also did the uh, Grateful Dead scrapbook uh, in 2009. And yes. how, what, tell, tell me about that. How'd that come about? Well, somebody thought of it because uh, at that time, a number of interesting uh, uh, scrapbooks had come out, this sort of new format of a book in which the reader would experience the book more, uh, more than just reading pages. On various pages, you would encounter a fold-out, uh, an envelope that included uh, replicas of uh, uh, concert tickets mm-hmm. or photographs you could take out and, and put on your wall instead of having to just look on the, on the page or cut from a book. Here now, you had control over recording session notes, replicas of souvenirs, all kinds of things that you would find in a scrapbook, only focused on the career of a musician, whether it was um, Frank Sinatra or Quincy Jones or uh, a reggae scrapbook, I remember. So uh, Grateful Dead were at that time putting their archives together at the University of Santa Cruz, and so this was on their minds. And somewhere along the way, someone said, hey, how about the Dead scrapbook? And so the idea got to my agent, and she proposed it to me to see if I was interested and, of course, being from here and having reported on the dead and having interviewed Jerry and the, uh, so many of the rest of the, of the group and the people behind the scenes of the Grateful Dead, I just thought, sure, that would be fun to do. And so I did it. And the same thing happened with the Doors by the Doors. It was, uh, again, an idea that came from an, another project. It was connected to a documentary about the doors, okay. and someone thought, oh, how about a book? And so that's how that idea came around. And again, I had interviewed Jim Morrison uh, just months before he went to Paris, oh, and where he passed away. Yeah. And I had known uh, uh, the other members from having done other things about the doors over the, the years. And so I wound up doing a book that basically featured interviews with all four doors and luckily i had my interview with jim and so he was a part of that book obviously he was in there along with the other guys in terms of direct quotes that's exciting it sounds like so much of this was had to do with uh, being able to have a quick response time ideas would hit the hit the table you'd be on them right away and just have to put together what was going on all right let's shift gears for a moment and listen to the music what song would that be?
found the men's spirit golf shoes at Dogs, D-A-W-G-S. I knew I had to make them available on my website at theencoreshow.com. Then I checked out their kids' offerings, especially the microfiber boots, and the price was right on those, too. You probably already know that my website carries CDs by all of the guests on my show, but you might not find some of the Amazon items I spotted, like a copy of sheet music signed by Henry Mancini from the movie The Pink Panther, or a signed self-portrait from Tommy Chong, or a Star Trek uniform signed by none other than Captain Kirk, a.k.a. William Shatner. And if you're into surfing, check out some of the great old posters from movies like Barefoot Adventure and Bruce Brown's Slippery When Wet. You'll find them all at theencoreshow.com. I notice uh, 2013... Uh, book Willen, the story of little feet, and I don't know if that's now your latest. I picked this up on some old information on uh, Wikipedia, but uh, my old singing partner Ted Templeman uh, produced some of uh, Little Feet, and I don't know if you did. You ever come across Ted in any of your interviews? I'm pretty certain I spoke with Ted. Yeah, uh, and uh, I, I'm sure if. Uh, if I, you or I looked at the book, we would find him in there uh, uh, pretty prominently because uh, he told me the whole Harper's Bazaar story. Oh, yeah. And about working with Lowell and the guys and what it was like dealing with the band. And so, yeah, Ted was a uh, part of uh, that book. It was a difficult book because it's just not easy dealing with um, a band whose most uh, forceful, charismatic, creative person arguably the most creative person in that band of talented guys, uh, was dead and yeah. had been for some time and had become kind of a cult figure. And so that leaves all these survivors saying, hey, what about us? And they carried on as little feet, and they were concerned that the book would be too much about one guy. It's the same with The Doors, worrying about a, any book about The Doors being heavily Jim Morrison-focused. Sure. Yeah, uh, or the dead, you know, worrying yeah. about Jerry Garcia being the guy, mm-hmm. and so there was there was that going on. So it was quite a challenge to try to balance uh, credit where credit was due, and also being respectful of the remaining members and the new members of Little Feet through the years. Sure, you know, talking about uh, Jerry Garcia, uh, I look back way back to before our time with Harper's Bazaar, uh, we played uh, a gig in Watsonville, and on the bill there were three guys that were, uh, they were like uh, country uh, musicians, and one was a banjo player, I think one was a a mandolin player, one was a guitar player. We were really taken by these guys because we'd never seen that kind of uh, top-notch musicianship. So fast forward from that date about two or three years. We're now in San Francisco and making our uh, trip every three months to do some recording. We're at, uh, do you remember Leo Kulka's studio? I think it was Golden State Recorders. can't remember. That sounds right. Yeah. That sounds right. So we're up there to, to do some recording. Again, this is prior to Harper's Bazaar. And Leo says, you know, if you guys wouldn't mind waiting another half hour, there's a group inside. Uh, and they're almost done. We said, fine, no problem. So finally, uh, the doors open up. These guys come walking out, and they're all dressed in black leather. 
And one of them was the guy that we had seen two years earlier, uh, and it turned out to be Jerry Garcia, and that and that group was the Grateful Dead, although they were not well known at that time. But the whole San Francisco music scene, watching it unfold, I mean, it was really, uh, uh, what do I want to say, pregnant with all kinds of stuff. It just kept, in a, in a way, if you remember the way we used to think about the Beatles and the whole British invasion, San Francisco was kind of similar in that it just kept yielding new people, interesting people, and and I think you were literally right in the middle of it all. Well, Dick, you know, I, yeah, I'm, I was in the middle of the 60s stuff, but originally really as just uh, like you, <laughs> uh, sort of an odd uh, member of the audience, and of course you are a musician, and you were involved on that level. I was a budding Reporter, so I was kind of observant, maybe taking some notes and covering a story or two. But it really was amazing to see how it did grow, and partly because people came, they flocked to San Francisco. They yeah. had begun to read about it in Life magazine or Time or their local radio station. There wasn't that much media coverage, but what there was just said it's all happening in San Francisco, the Haight-Ashbury, the whole Berkeley scene. Sure. And so we were flooded with people, and many of them turned out to be talented musicians from Texas or uh, Michigan or yeah. uh, <laughs> Boston. And that just added to the scene. And so that's, I think, why it kept flowering. And you had people like Jerry Garcia, who you saw playing yeah. a banjo. Yeah. He was absolutely into bluegrass music at that time down in Palo Alto, and then they became the Warlocks, and by the time you saw them at Leo's studio, they were blossoming into the Grateful Dead. Mm-hmm. And he said, he, he told me once, that the reason he dropped the banjo for the electric guitar was LSD. Really? That he, just, he just wanted to hear longer sounds. Huh. And he knew that the guitar was one, one way to do that. And so you hear these stories from people like him and John Cipollina of Quicksilver and Paul Kantner from the uh, Airplane, and they all come from different uh, loves of different musics as kids, and they come onto the scene and they say, wow, look what the Beatles did, what Bob Dylan did, what the Stones are doing, what the Who, the Animals, the Tiki's, mm-hmm. and so they say, I want some of that. Yeah. And so they, they evolved uh, just as we all did, and hopefully we still are. Yeah. You know, I, and I don't want to keep you too much longer because I know you got other things happening right now, but I got to ask you, any new books coming out? What's the plan for the future? What's going on? Well, thanks for asking. Um, you know, the little feet book was my last one and it was a tough experience and I'm not, I'm not really looking forward to another one, although offers come uh, my way here and there. So I'm, I'm being a little choosier now. I'm still juggling a number of things. I write the Radio Waves column for the Chronicle here in San Francisco that runs every other week in the Sunday paper. I uh, am program director and uh, a DJ on an online station called Moon Alice Radio. That's for the jam band up here, and uh, that is all pre-recorded like that. But it's a very eclectic station that reflects the uh, nature of a jam band like Moon Alice. Mm-hmm. So I do that, and I'm heard from 9 till 12, day and night, doing a fairly topical freeform music program. And I am involved in a 
what I would have to say is a massive writing project that I cannot talk about yet uh, for contractual reasons. But if and when it happens, it will be probably news uh, in my field because it's something I've never done before. So that's that's all I can tell you. But I am mired in all of that work, and I am uh, uh, called upon a lot to uh, talk uh, at community organizations. I also sing a little bit, so I'm about to go into the winter and a number of concerts uh, or performances at various places uh, for Bread and Roses, the organization that sends performers out to entertain uh, folks in uh, senior care centers or other places like that. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's a pretty busy life still at my advanced age. Yeah, <laughs> at your advanced age, I think you and I are probably about the same. I was born in 1945. Can I get back to you? Let's just look down the road more than six months out, and I'm not going to guess at what it is that you're talking about that's going to happen. But if it does happen sometime, let's say, in the next six to eight months, I'd like to get back to you and uh, and find out about that. Are you open to that? Yes. Okay. If, uh, it, it, it is going to happen. Okay. Uh, so I just cannot talk about it yeah. legally. Yeah. And so if and when it does happen, let's say, yes, okay. I will uh, come back and talk with you about it because I believe you would want you would want to talk about it. Yes. Yes. Oh, great. Okay. Well, listen, I want to thank you again. Great interview. Lots of good stuff. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to talk again in 2018. All right. Thank you, Dick. It was a pleasure to talk with you. All right. Well, I want to thank you for joining me on this, our Encore episode number 38 with Ben Fong Torres. I want to remind you to check out our website, theencoreshow.com. We'd like to keep these shows free, so if you're able to buy any of the items on our shopping page at theencoreshow.com, that should be enough to keep us going. Until next week, and more memories from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, keep on keeping on. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Encore Show with Dick Scopatoni. If you got any questions or suggestions, send us an email. The address, dick at theencoreshow.com. Join us again next week for more memories from the good old days. In the words of Jerry Garcia, what a long, strange trip it was. So if you're ready to take another trip with us down memory lane next week, well, be there or be, you know the word. I'm Ralph Cole. See you then. See you then.